Welcome to another episode of the Mostly Legal Podcast. What does Alan Iverson, a famous disbarred attorney, and a girls softball coach all have in common? I'm Rob Joyner, Chief Revenue Officer for Centerbase. And our guest today, Michael Cohen, will answer those burning questions and more. And I'm Amanda Copeless, Executive Director for a mid-sized law firm based in Central Florida. I've been watching Michael speak for years, and he's well sought after and highly regarded for a reason. You're in for a treat. Let's dive in. Today, we're talking to Michael S. Cohen. He is a partner at the international law firm of Dwayne Morris, and he practices in the area of employment law, labor, and benefits, and it's his resume is super boring. But in general, he's a really interesting person. You also are a frequent speaker and Association of Legal Administrators fan favorite. Every time I have to hear... There was no room in Michael Cohen's session. We all had to stand. I want to just say, okay, well, it's not that interesting. He talks about the same thing every single, like HR law is really easy. My grandma used to say, if you don't want to have to explain it to Judge Judy, just don't do it. Anyways. Amanda, you're a fangirl too. And yet we're all so busy. So I don't know how it is. Do the math. <sighs> all right. So- Thank you for joining us. We're going to get started with some rapid fire questions. I'm up. First question. So, Michael, your name. Are you that Michael Cohen? (laughs) Very funny. Very funny. Uh, (laughs) So I actually have two funny stories with that. One, uh, when this was all going down a few years ago, uh, one of my younger daughters, uh, uh, her name's Maddie, uh, when she, one of her friends, I guess Maddie was probably like 10 at the time, 11 at the time. And one of her friends, I guess, has, was watching the news and saw it was one of the days that Donald Trump was absolutely eviscerating Michael Cohen on the news <laughs> and on Twitter. And one of my one of Maddie's friends texted Maddie and just said, Maddie, don't worry. It's OK. We all know your dad. He's not that bad. <laughs> It was and it was such a beautiful sentiment. It was so sweet of her. Uh, the other one is I, I was checking into a hotel in I think I was in Rochester, New York, and, and it was it was super I was super busy at, at this time. I was doing a lot of speaking about Me Too, and I had just gotten into the hotel. It was about one o'clock in the morning, and I was doing some talks at a factory the next day. So I had to be at the factory at like six. So all I wanted to do was get into my room, pass out for a couple hours, get up and get going. And I have my credit card and I have my license already. I hand them to the lovely gentleman at the desk and I get this. And I'm like, well, I'm not him. I'm not him. For those listening, you're looking down. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I'm I'm looking down. With a weird look on his face. And I was just like, he's taller. He's way more indicted than I am. You know, we're way, we're totally different people. And so, so you no. still have a law license. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I do. So, Rob, thank you for asking and for clarifying it, really, uh, because I think there were a lot of people who were confused, except not at all. I actually got a lot of fun with the hashtag. I'm not that Michael Cohen for a while on it's, social it's... media. <laughs> OK, so you mentioned your daughter. Uh, rapid fire question number two. You're a girl yeah. dad. And one time at a conference, I heard you say. If I have to stop speaking because my daughter calls, everybody just needs to be prepared for it. So I think you have like six or seven daughters based on all the pictures you post. Can you, what's it like have being a girl dad? So I have two daughters. My older daughter, oh, okay. Mia, is a sophomore in college. Go blue. Uh, my younger daughter, Maddie, is going to be, is going to be a sophomore in high school. Uh, and, and I will tell you, the most disappointed I've ever been in my entire life was when we found out the sex of our first child. We went to the appointment and I did not want to find out at all uh, whether it was a boy or girl. I figure it's a surprise if it's going to be like something like an owl. Like I kind of wanted to know that, but (laughs) I didn't want to know. And and my wife, Jamie, very kindly said, that's fine. I'm finding out. You don't have to be in the room, but we both know I'm not going to be able to keep it a secret. So we found (laughs) out and I, all I had kept saying up until that day was, I just want a healthy kid. I don't care what it is. And I, and I actually, it turns out, I I felt like a little gut punch. Like I wanted a boy and I didn't even realize it. And it took me until I basically woke up the next morning 
when I was all in. And then when Jamie was pregnant the second time, I was actively campaigning for a second daughter. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> actively. Badly, badly How does that work? <laughs> you, you, as somebody who's had two kids, I don't... Well, and as somebody who says a lot of things to which very few people listen, it just kind of goes like that. You just say it a lot and hope for the best. Um, it was... And being a girl dad is the greatest thing ever invented. Um, awesome. All respect to fathers who have sons, and I'm sure it is a lovely experience and a wonderful experience. I would not trade anything on this planet for the relationship I have with my girls. And, and Amanda, you brought it up. Uh, my older daughter, Mia, has this unbelievable ability to call me every time I'm speaking. And I have an Apple Watch, and I'm usually pretty good about turning notifications off on my watch when I go up to speak. Sometimes I forget. And just, in fact, this, and I'll tell her, dude, I'm going to be speaking for the next 90 minutes. Don't call me. <laughs> and I was just speaking in New Orleans at the annual SHRM conference. And I had, I don't know, a thousand people in the room and my watch started buzzing. <laughs> and I was like, can everybody indulge me for a second? And I answered in front of all these people. And I was just like, bro, we just <laughs> talked. It's bruh now. Bruh. Just, right. Sorry. My bad. I just told you I was going to be giving... Oh, my bad. Well, did you need anything? No, it's just calling to say hi. <laughs> God, hey, at least she does that, bit. right? No, and then I sh honestly, Rob, I shouldn't complain because yeah. I talk to her even in college two, three times a day. And it's, That's you awesome. know, what's going on? Nothing. Just walking to class. Just want to say hi, see what's going on. You know, and, and I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky in that respect. Amanda, your kids are the same way, right? They call you all the time and want to talk. <laughs> I'll go, I will go out of town for a week and talk to my children once, twice, maybe like, yeah. you know, we, I might snap my daughter a few times here, there back and forth, you know, cause I'm cool. I might, I was gonna film say, a TikTok. Clearly cool. I'm clearly cool. I might film a TikTok and throw it at her. We'll share some reels. You guys lay, picking up what I'm laying down. But other than uh -huh. that, no, we all know I'm a terrible mom. It's fine. Do you do be real yet? Have you done that yet? No. Oh, what look that? at what I just did. I just made Amanda's head explode. You can't tell, but I'm telling you, it's just Be Real is a new one where you get a message from Be Real once a day. And what you're supposed uh, to do is, irrespective of where you are, you take a picture of yourself and then whatever is on the other side of the camera. Um, and that's your Be Real for the day. So I, I didn't know what it was until a couple of weeks ago, but you know, we were we spent a fair amount of time at the beach this summer. And everyone's, Dad, you want to be on my B-Reel? Dad, you want to be on my B-Reel? I'm like, I'm pretending to work. Like, can you just... <laughs> I am working remotely right now. Thank right. you. Debbie Foster brought it up, Amanda, in oh. one of the previous episodes. Oh, did she? It's very know? cool, actually. It wasn't about it's me, so I wasn't cool. listening, clearly. Uh, uh. Uh. <laughs> hey, Michael, so you live in Philadelphia, uh, and we all know about the sports fans in Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, how's it being a Yankees fan? This Why how's it being a Yankees fan? Why would anybody ever want to be a Yankees fan? <laughs> you, can, you can talk to me about all the World Series. You can talk to me about all the Hall of Famers. You can talk to me about Derek Jeter all you want. You don't suffer as a Yankee fan. You don't have the full experience of being a sports fan. You don't have an inferiority complex that you carry with you wherever you go when you're a Yankees fan. I, you know, And I will tell you, Rob, the, the Philadelphia – I could do commercials for this city. It is – my, my older daughter is going back to college on Monday and we were talking about her job for next summer. And hopefully when she graduates from college, she wants to work in the world of sports. And she was like, really the only two places on the planet are Philadelphia and Ann Arbor. Those are really the only mm. two places that are worth living in. And I couldn't <laughs> agree with her more. Being a Philadelphia sports fan is torturous. It's absolutely Especially an Eagles fan. And, uh, okay. So we're going to do this. Rob, <laughs> where, who do you root for Rob? I'm in Dallas. Oh, uh, you know, oh. you know that the Cowboys have, have not won a Super Bowl during the lives of either of my children. And <laughs> as long as or you not, guys just got your first one. Yeah. Which has been more recent than the Cowboys. We're really going to you're really going to do this with the Cowboys right okay, now. Let's do in the, the whole how many rings does everybody have? I am a yeah. Green Bay fan. Big Aaron, Rogers, your background. Big, big Aaron Rodgers guy, are you? Um. Yeah. I okay. Guess. So anyway, I mean, not um, particularly because of that whole, you, you know, he's, yeah, no, that's the, why I he has really, really gone down this like Nick cage aisle that I'm just not about right now. So, so uh, I like him ours, a little less grungy. 
<laughs> my response to the how many rings do you have is the same number as you. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was so not funny. But yeah, okay. so Rob, we'll talk during the year. I'm going to leave Amanda alone because the Packers are really good. Uh, <laughs> but like the Cowboys stink. And as long as Jerry Jones is in charge of that team, I have nothing to worry about. I want Jerry Jones and Daniel Snyder to stay in the NFC East forever. You know, I want to put up a good fight with you, but this year I don't think I can. <laughs> Amanda's going to go back and cut that segment short. No, that I'm not. Short. I love it. Y'all, I love football. Are you kidding me? Okay, but let's talk about sports. You coach a lot of softball for your daughters. What have you learned from coaching that helps you in your career? So it's my favorite thing I get to do. Um, and as I said earlier, I am just monumentally fortunate in as much as my teenage daughters still like me hanging around. Uh, and I have the conversation with them before every season. I had it with Mia before she, as she will tell you, retired. Um, or as uh, Serena, Serena Williams recently said, evolved away from the sport. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't I like just, the word retire. I just loved. I loved I it. Um, I love everything about her. So before each season, I asked my, you know, now Maddie, can you still want me to coach? Yeah, Dad, I want you to still coach. Can you stop making bad jokes? I'm like, no, that's kind of part of the thing. Um <laughs> And at the beginning of the pandemic, Amanda, I was listening to a podcast and the guy who was being interviewed on the podcast was a guy by the name of Larry Brown. And Larry Brown was the head basketball coach for the Philadelphia 76ers back at the beginning of the 2000s and had what I believe to be the absolute privilege of coaching the guy who was to this day, pound for pound, the greatest NBA player offensively. The My favorite. Seen, and that is a guy by the name of Allen Iverson. Yeah. Um, my older daughter has worn number three since the beginning of her sports career because of Alan. So I'm listening to this podcast and he's talking about Alan Iverson and the, the host asked him, how were you more than any other NBA coach able to get so much out of Alan really more than anybody else? And the answer he gave is an answer that I have used with my girls who I coach and I use it when I'm providing advice and I use it during trainings. And what he said was, I treat everybody fairly, but I don't treat everybody the same. I treat okay. everybody fairly, but I don't treat everybody the same. And I coached 18U for three years. My older daughter played 18U for three years. So I coached them for three years. And after that three years, I went back and I started with 14s last year with my younger daughter. And it's like coaching different species. Coaching a 17 <laughs> and 18-year-old young woman is different than coaching a 14-year-old girl because 14-year-old girls cry. Yes. And, I mean, uh, all women cry. Yeah. Well, men too. I, I'm, I'm the biggest crier in my house, but I try not to do it when I'm on a field of some kind. And the reality is we can't treat everybody the same, right? I have to treat Maddie different than I treat Emily, different than I treat Kalen, because I know they have, there are different things that will motivate them. And I have taken that to what I do day to day from a leadership standpoint. Different things motivate different people. Different things are going to work with different people. You know, we're so trained in employment law, in the human resources world, that we want 100% consistency. And it is such an anachronistic notion. I don't know that it ever had any validity to it. I'm sure it doesn't now. You, you can't treat everybody the same and expect those people to be able to perform at their best. You have to get to know your people, don't you? Like, I know how I can treat each of my girls. And, and I had, unfortunately, I, I, I have my first 16U practice today with my new team. So I'm super excited. I can't wait to get out there and, and start coaching this young, this new young group, this new group of young women. But I had to cut over half of the team that I had last year. And it was just, it was unmerciful. And my wife basically said to me, I'm sick of hearing you whine about this. Because I was agonizing over it for about two months because you, you see it, right? Like I know most of my girls are aging out. I know a lot of 16 U's who are there are not aging out. I know the math doesn't work. And then we get this influx of new girls. And the reality is you have to be able to handle it's something else that taught me is you've got to be able to handle the communication of news that is not overwhelmingly positive in a professional way. Right. Um, you have to you, look, I lead with emotion in just about everything I do. And, and for me to say I can shut that out or turn it off, it, it would not only be disingenuous, it would just be a lie. And it's not sort of who I am. Uh, but at some level, you've got to be able to have communications, even with 14 and 15 year old girls, that is professional. That is, look, here's the reality. And 
what was really interesting, and I talk about it all the time in my trainings, but sometimes you kind of stop paying attention, right? When, when you're talking. And, and one of the things <laughs> I talk to people about is, you know, when, when you're in the midst of a termination conversation, you get in and you get out because they're adults and they can take it. And yeah. I was agonizing over what I, the conversations I was going to have to have with these girls whom I, I just adore and who these girls who did everything I asked them to do and did things I didn't ask them to do. And they and their parents couldn't have been kinder um, and couldn't have been more receptive. And, and part of that, I think, comes from the fact that the organization where I coach, and I'd like to think me, but I think probably more the organization, has built up enough credibility in their eyes that the parents and the kids know we're, we're trying to do its best. It's not about the kid. It's about the organization. I'm sure it didn't make it feel any better, but those are the kinds of things that I've taken away. Uh, and, and, you know, That's it's great. You hear the line all the time, you learn more from them than they do for you. And it's, it's really true. Uh, I mean, they've taught me how to be more patient. <laughs> Rob, should you start coaching kids softball or? No, that like my stomach hurts just thinking about having to do that. And I'm heartless. You, know, you have no soul. We have no soul. I have no soul. That's what it is. I, I forgot no what you usually say. Yeah. You have yes. a heart. You just don't have a soul. It, well, you Fair have enough. a soul. It's just black and crusty. There we go. There we go. There that sounds go. That sounds tough. It's a little tough. It is tough. It is tough. Uh, so switching to more, I guess, professional questions. What, yeah. uh, Michael, what does your typical day look like? Honestly, it depends. Starting again in the fall, I'll get back to doing an awful lot of in-person training. I suppose I should take a half a step back. I have a sort of non-traditional kind of practice, which candidly is really the only kind of practice that I could tolerate. Um, <laughs> the idea of sitting in an office every day, I, I wouldn't be doing this job anymore. I'd, I'd have found something else to do. Uh, and what I, what I found was about 15, 16 years ago uh, was I had this real passion for speaking, for teaching, um, which I think sort of goes along the same lines as coaching. Uh, and I was able to develop a practice where it's all preventative in nature, Rob. So if I'm not out speaking with an organization, with a company, with you know, a not-for-profit, whatever it happens to be on that particular day, I'm on the phone helping organizations with strategic plans, helping them get through a particularly sticky issue related to COVID over the last couple of years. Uh, handling a leave of absence, whatever it happens to be, the day-to-day stuff that goes on in a co- in a company that's a little bit more complicated than an experienced HR professional can handle. And 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 I hate to keep coming back to it, but but I can't help it. Uh, I spent a lot of time. I, I when my older daughter was playing ball, I spent a lot of time in the car with her. Uh, and a lot of the time I spent in the car with her was during working hours because we were going to showcases, we were going to tournaments, we were going to wherever yeah. we were going. And Mia knew to bring headphones with her when we got in the car, because most of the time I was on the phone, you know, trying to get those calls that I needed to get in before six o'clock so that I could get back on the field. And as she started getting older, she put her headphones away and she started listening. And I cannot tell you the number of times she said to me, dad, I know you say you're a lawyer, but I actually think you're a therapist. (laughs) <laughs> and it's it's actually a, a really astute observation for what people who are in employment law and do a lot of day-to-day counseling experience because a lot of times what it is is they want my gut they want how do you feel about that you've been doing this for x number of years you have some level of empathy you have some ability to communicate with humans how should we handle um, so the observation, I think, is is pretty spot on. Um, <laughs> but the day to day, if even if I am training, there are calls in between. Um, when I travel for work, I am a big dork. I don't sit down at a bar at, at the hotel. Occasionally, I'll go if like a, a baseball <laughs> or a basketball team is in town, I'll try and go get a game in. But otherwise, I'm in my room working because that's when if I'm doing trainings all day, clients don't care. You got to get the work done, you know, and they need the agreement the next day. So that's what it is. But, you know, I have absolutely no complaints about my professional life. I am one of the, one of the fortunate ones who actively enjoys what I do day to day. I mean, look, we all have moments that suck and there's no way around that. 
um, and you miss things. And as a dad, I hate that. But like FaceTime has made things easier. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but so the, the day to day really depends. If I'm out and about, I'm out and about. If I'm here these days, it's in my basement or as, you know, occasionally in the office. But, you know, the commute for me is rough. It's like a five minute walk into my office. <laughs> that's tough. From where I live. Really? So I don't tough. like I don't like really to burn is. all that extra time. Yeah, uh. that's, that's tough. So we're about to get into strategic planning and planning season. What's your like 60 second takeaway for our audience uh, as they begin planning for 23? So there are a couple things that to the extent we're not paying attention to right now. And I don't know why we wouldn't be. Um, we better be. And, and in the legal, you know, the legal industry is usually a little bit. There's a lag right. uh, between what Google is doing and what Microsoft is doing and what TikTok is doing. Even down there's then there's another step and then there's the legal industry. Overwhelmingly, there are some firms that are phenomenal. But if we're not paying attention right now and we're not doing things to make clear to our employees that we are concerned and are here to help as it relates to mental health awareness, I don't know what we're waiting for. I really don't know how big and heavy the rock would have to be under which you've been living for the last <laughs> couple of years. Not, I just literally today read an article um, that the number is somewhere like 81% of employees are looking for employers that care about mental health. Oh, you posted it on LinkedIn. I saw I it. I did. I posted it on LinkedIn today. Yes. Um, so that's one. And, and that's not just talking about it. That's taking active steps to deal with it. And, and if you don't think employees in this labor market are looking for organizations, looking for firms, companies in the legal industry that are not just talking about it, but actually act, like I said, actively taking steps to help. I mean, you, you have your head in the sand. The second piece is, and again, this isn't progressive thinking is like, what are we doing with DEI? And I know we've been talking about it for two, three, four, some of us 15 years, but what, okay, great. You have a DEI initiative. What does it look like? What are you doing? Well, we had this really meaningless training um, <laughs> that really did not move the ball at all. So we figure we're good now. And honestly, that's what some firms are doing just so they can say they did it. Like don't spend your money and don't insult your employees. Um, our firm, for example, is in the process of requiring every partner, associate of counsel and staff member to go through a meaningful DEI uh, and implicit bias training. And, and I know it's meaningful, or at least I hope it's meaningful because I'm one of the couple of people in the firm like... <laughs> that is delivering this training to all of our employees. And by the way, there is nothing less comfortable than training people you work with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Like put me in front of 10,000 strangers and I'm good. Put me in front of eight people I know and it gets a little weird. But I think those are the two areas right now. I, I mean, the, the great resignation has slowed. I actually saw Johnny Taylor, uh, who's the president of Sherm quoted recently, is talking about how he believes with the economy turning, employers are getting some leverage back. Yep. And what he said he thinks that means for a lot of employers is this idea of remote work is going to be decreased. And, and I, I suspect that's probably right to a degree, but I do worry about employers that go 180. And I use, I use my wife as an example. Uh, Jamie used to say, and Jamie's always had the really the privilege of working with some incredibly, genuinely good human beings throughout the course of her career. Uh, and she always said, and I would work from home a lot. Uh, and she was like, I don't know how you do it. I hate working from home. You know, there's too many distractions. I like being around the people. And she works now for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and it is an entirely remote job. And she says all the time, there is no way I would ever go into an office again. Right. Mm. And I think if we skew too hard, too fast, the other way, we're really going to run the risk of losing a massive percentage of the population that really has started to embrace, at a minimum, this hybrid working environment. I could not agree more. But we'll see. That's it. That's we'll all I'm going to say. Could not agree yeah. more. No. We'll okay. See so yeah, I figured you'd have more more to say about that, Amanda. <laughs> well, you know, the mental health thing is very personal to me. You know, my my mom struggled with it and died from mental illness, and so it is something that I you know take very seriously and very personally. And 
I struggle with it and how to help my firm and how to help the people that work with me. And I love that there's such a renewed focus on it, right? Because Same. 10 years ago, I never, when my mom died, we yeah. didn't put on Facebook what had happened to her. And that was 10 years ago. And, and it was just a, there was an accident, right? There was, we didn't share all the details and the, the way that the conversation has changed over 10 years makes me just feel so much better. And Rob and I will openly share that we both have a lot of anxiety that we've struggled with. And again, a decade ago, I never would have admitted in a yep. public forum that I struggle with anything like that. And mm -hmm. so I love that the conversation is going and moving the needle a little bit, but I agree with you hundred percent that we've got to, as employers, push it forward a little bit farther and a little bit faster or right. It's going to be a, it's a crisis. It's a crisis. It, 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 so I, it's interesting because I had a, a kind of a different experience, Amanda. I am the product of two shrinks. Okay. <laughs> Both my mother and my father were psychologists. Now understand they are the two most divorced human beings on the planet cannot be in the same room with each other. Literally had to have the conversation with my parents before Mia was born. If you're not going to act like grownups, you're not coming because we are not doing two of everything. You know, we've been able to sw swing this before kids, but we ain't doing two of everything. <laughs> um, so these are, but these were concepts that I was raised with. You know, I, I really, in a meaningful way, was raised with paying attention to how you feel and getting in touch with what's going on. You know, I remember I, I my younger brother, who is now, for those, I'm five six. And I weigh like 155. My, my younger brother is about six feet and he weighs about 190. Uh, but when we were younger, <laughs> when, when we were younger, I was bigger than he was. And he was still afraid of me because I was his older brother. And I kicked the crap out of him one day. And I remember my dad coming to me and saying, you know, Michael, how did that make you feel? And I'm sitting there thinking, pretty good, you know, because I won. Um <laughs> But ultimately, and I joked about it earlier, I was the one that ended up crying after the conversation with my dad because I realized what I had done. I don't think this is unique, Amanda, to you, Rob, to you, certainly to my family. We all have family members. We all personally have had a lot of experience with mental illness, certainly over the course of the last couple of years. Anybody with any kind of underlying mental health concerns, they were exacerbated. Anybody who didn't experience something just wasn't paying attention. Mm -hmm. Because if you weren't scared, if you weren't at a minimum concerned and had some level of apprehension over the course of the last couple of years, your head was in the sand. And again, I was going to say, or you attention. were actually, you had just as much of an illness. It was just called denial. Denial for sure. <laughs> and, and one of the wonderful things, and, and you know, I've held on to it and I've grabbed onto it and have used it as much as I can is, you know, uh, pop culture, like things like Ted Lasso have Ooh, really we're going there next. Yeah. I mean, it really has opened the door and has embraced this idea of destigmatizing and demystifying the realities of mental illness. You know, when Dr. Fieldstone was introduced on that show, it was just, it was so wonderful to watch, you know, Danny had to go because he killed the dog with a penalty kick. Uh, but then you know, each episode, there was another one or two or three players who you saw leaving Dr. Fieldstone's office until ultimately, as we know, Ted eventually ends up and, and goes. But, you know, the more of that, that we can, you know, again, demystify and, and normalize the fact that people struggle from time to time. And, you know, it, it's not only that it's okay, it's that it's as employers, as friends, as humans, like we need to do a better job of, right. of embracing them. I, I, you know, you said you, I came across yesterday um, something that I had posted on Facebook uh, a few years ago. And it always made, it always reminds me of my younger daughter and it's a parable. And it's, it's something that came from the West wing, which is my favorite TV show. Of all. Oh yes. Um, and there's this great scene in the West wing where Leo McGarry is talking to Josh Lynham and Josh had just screwed a bunch of stuff up and he was worried about getting fired and, and Leo tells him this story and he's like, and the story goes, and I'll, and I'll do it quickly. Guy's walking down the street and he falls into a hole and it's a deep hole and he can't get out of it. And a doctor walks by and he screams up from the hole, doctor, doctor, can you help me? Please, can you help me get out of this hole? And the doctor writes out a prescription and throws it down in the hole, continues walking. 
A couple minutes later, a member of the clergy walks by. Can you please help me? Help me. I've fallen into this hole and I can't get out. And the member of the clergy writes down a prayer and throws it into the hole. A couple minutes later, his friend Joe walks by. Joe, Joe, can you please help me? I've fallen into this hole and I can't get out. And Joe jumps in the hole and his friend looks at him and says, what are you, what are you nuts? What are you doing? Now we're both in the hole. And Joe says to him, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know how to get out. And wow. it always reminds me of my, my younger daughter because my younger daughter has, and I, I tell people this all the time and she gets mortified when I say it out loud in public. She's the goodest human being I've ever met. Like, I don't know how <laughs> she is. I don't know how my wife and I created this person. Um, she just like, I'm in awe of her for all of the things that she does and will absolutely deny ever doing them and does not like recognition and does not like attention. But like, we all have to be like Joe and we all have to be like, you know, in my mind, Maddie, where Maddie would have been the first person to jump in that hole. I wouldn't have been, I would have tried to figure out a way to get the guy out, but I wouldn't have jumped down. Like the more people that can jump into that hole and can be like Joe, I think the better off we are. All right. Now I'll stop preaching. No, I love it. It makes you self-reflect. It does. I'm very, very reflect, reflectable right now. Are you? <laughs> yeah. That's good. Okay, so let's get into some fun. Yeah. Okay. I love stories. So tell us an HR horror story. Okay. Years Former ago. client or pretend Former client, client. Yeah. Pretend. It was is, not actually a client. However, you have a, to say it. We'll call it hypothetically. Um, yeah. No, this happened. This happened, and this was probably. I'm going back. 10, 15 years. Um, had a client, uh, with which I did a, I did a lot of work, uh, and the head of HR was a little bit tough. Um, and that was okay. Uh, and we got a complaint, um, an internal complaint went to a hotline. Uh, and when it went to the hotline, uh, legal called me and, and it turned out it was a complaint about the HR department. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and the complaint was about some of the behaviors in which the HR uh, members were engaging. And it wasn't anything uh, inappropriate in terms of sex. It wasn't inappropriate in terms of race. It wasn't inappropriate in terms of LGBTQ status. It was, and, and I ended up conducting this investigation. And the phrase that I heard over and over and over again, Rob, was they suck the human out of human resources. <laughs> And it wasn't once, it wasn't twice, it was over and over again. And they had done all of these horrible things to prevent people from ever accessing wow. HR. And the organization allowed it to continue to happen because there really was a fundamental lack of understanding of yeah. HR's function and HR's purpose and, and how oh, it is really we know critically what that important. Is, don't we? Yeah, and we have to. And it was just, that to me was sort of the biggest indictment of the profession and overwhelmingly the HR professionals with whom I have worked over the course of the last 25 years are the, are the antithesis of what that HR department had done. Uh, but they really did. They sucked the light. There was a stop sign on the door of the HR <laughs> department. It was, you know, you had to make appointments all the time. And it wasn't because they were so busy. It's because they just didn't want to deal with people. And by the oh, way, well, it wasn't, I mean, they're not wrong. Like <laughs> Right. I mean, people are the worst. And it wasn't overwhelmingly the other HR professionals in the department. It was the person who was in charge. Uh, yeah. And it got rough. That was probably one of the more disturbing things I've seen. I had somebody who worked for me and I used to Don't you to have say, a stop sign, Amanda? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, That's yes. actually at her front door. That's at my front door. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. At home. <laughs> I had somebody who worked for me and this person was great at like benefits and FMLA and filling out the paperwork and doing the onboarding and was just a terrible human being. And so I used yeah. to say he, she is great at the resources, but not great at the human. Yeah. And I think that people miss that that is a double duty job, yeah. right? You have to be great at putting all the, checking all the boxes, but then when you have to sit with a person and actually be a person, and this is why at the end of the day, I do not do HR as a full-time job because I'm not great with people. I hate them in yeah. general. So, wow. and I, and it's, it's incredible. <laughs> I like you, Rob and Michael. Mm. Pull quote you know, for the episode. I, right. I was going to say, I heard the conversations that were going on before we started, uh, but it really is true. Like if you don't 
like the human part. Like, don't do this job. There's right. other stuff you can do. Yep. Plenty of other jobs out there. Okay. So we talked about mental health. Yeah. Other than that, which I say, I say that as like, that's not a big issue. What do you see as the single biggest issue facing employers today? And what advice would you give them? So I think it, it is still related to that. And right now, what we're seeing a lot of issues with are leaves of absence. People coming back to the office and, and mm-hmm. still have some concerns related to COVID. Uh, certainly with the CDC's most recent guideline. I mean, people who have COVID can come into work. And what we're seeing now is, and you know, you can always tell if you do what I do, what's hot and topical inside of organizations because you get asked to talk about it a lot. And right now it is this combination of COVID and the Family Medical Leave Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, which brings in COVID. It brings in mental health. It brings in, you know, a younger generation's understanding of the importance of their well-being. And Mm -hmm the fact that they are now taking advantage of, and I don't say taking advantage in a negative way, they are availing themselves of the protections of the law in a way that other people might not, right? Like, you know, if I hear one more time, one more partner in a law firm say something that starts with, well, in my day, oh. <laughs> because all I, all I see, all I hear when I hear that is somebody out on the front lawn in a robe, shaking a newspaper at the young whippersnappers. Like (laughs) we adapt or we die, right? I I mean, we're either going to figure this out or we're going to render ourselves relics. And I think that's, that's probably right now, Amanda, the single issue with which we are dealing and, and are confronting the most. It's how to handle when we're coming back into the office, these concerns that people are having. I mean, that's, again, we still have the DEI issues. We still have massive problems as it relates to equity, as it relates to inclusion um, in law firms, in workplaces. And again, there are firms that are really doing their best to put their, to, to not just talk about it. And, 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 you know, I'm not a commercial for Dwayne Morris or my firm, but I got to say, my firm does it really, really well. Right. You know, we win on a yearly basis, one of the best organizations in Southeast Pennsylvania to work for, for women, not one of the best law firms, one of the best organizations. Because we honor things like part-time employee, right? You know, I've worked in places before where there were people who were working part-time. So instead of working 120%, they were working 100% and now only getting 80% pay. And I used to say, like, what are you doing? Like, you're nuts. You're working the same hours as I am, maybe, you know, within the margins anyway. And you're making 80% of your full salary. Why are you doing that? Because there was no respect at all. Mm-hmm. for the realities of part-time employment. So those issues, they still exist in a meaningful way. But these are all concerns that relate, again, it's sort of in a more global sense to the ability to recruit, to the ability to retain uh, the caliber of talent that we want to recruit and retain. For our last question, Amanda, I'm going to go off script a little bit. Okay, because I was going to say, we're you're completely going off script this whole episode. So you just... The world is yours, Rob Joyner. Sure. Thanks. I appreciate it. So, Michael, we know you're an important guy, right? And you travel a lot. You're busy with your professional life. How do you balance your personal and your professional life? And how do you make sure you're you're spending the time you want to with your daughters, but also, you know, continuing to progress in your career? It's hard, right? It's hard for anybody. And I don't think I'd be able to do what I do now to the degree that I do it now when my kids were much younger, Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you know, it just wouldn't have been fair to Jamie to leave, you know, what was a miserable four-year-old in Mia. Um, (laughs) I have two of those right now. Yeah. I was going to say Rob has got two little, she was unpleasant at any speed. Mm. Um, (laughs) and a brand new baby and as joyful and as happy as Maddie and her giant head were, um, (laughs) she was a little kid who required a lot of attention. How do you do it? by right you do your best to prioritize i mean i said before and and i'll I'll go back when i was more junior i would get up at five o'clock in the morning i was in the office at six o'clock in the morning and i would leave the office every day at five or five thirty which is still like an 11 11 and a half hour day every day Uh, and people used to say you know why do you get in so early and my answer was always the same and it was because my wife and my kids are asleep when i leave and they're up when i get home right and i'd rather be home when they're awake than home when they're sleeping. 
Right. Now it's what I talked about. It's if I'm on the road and I'm training, you know, night times are to get work done so that when I do get home, I don't have to worry about it after softball practice. I don't have to worry about it after work. I don't have to worry about it after we go out for dinner. It's gotten easier as I've gotten older. I, I also think candidly establishing expectations for clients is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. You know, my clients know that unless I have fallen, you know, I've fallen off a bridge or something that if they don't hear from me within an hour or two of getting an email or a text or a call or whatever it is, that something's gone wrong. And very often what that means is a call saying, hey, I'm not going to be able to get back to you to tomorrow, but I got you. Uh, and it's such a simple thing. And there are so many people that just let those things wait. Um, and what that does for me is it alleviates the anxiety they have, right? It, okay, now I've bought myself this little bit of time so I can get these other things done so that when I get home, I got to make this one phone call, but now I can go do whatever it is, the other things I need to do, whether it's putting laundry away, whether it is taking, you know, our dog, Jojo Iverson, Rollins, Jojo Rollins Iverson, yes, that is her name. <laughs> Jojo Rollins Iverson for a walk. Um, she's our third child because, you know, why not? Yes, we have a French uh -huh. bulldog named Jojo Rollins Iverson who's named after <laughs> Joel and B. B. Rollins and Alan Iverson. Um, but it's making sure that the things that require, for me anyway, the human attention, they take top priority. I mean, they have to. I take my job very seriously. Don't get me wrong. And I work. I think I work very, very hard, but there are ways you can do that given what I do without losing a lot of the time that I really want. Mm -hmm. um, but it does mean, you know, there's sacrifice, right? The sacrifice that we, we all make all the time. So if I'm working, if I'm doing trainings and I did seven hours of training in a day and I come back and I'm beat, you know, are you going to do the work now? Or are you going to do it when you get home? I mean, I always opt for do it now. So that when I get home, I can do those things. Again, it gets easier for sure when you have more control. Almost it would have been impossible for me to do as a fourth year associate. Mm -hmm. um, but out 25 years or whatever the number is at this point um, and having sort of established this unique kind of practice, it's worked. I mean, who knows? It could all, you know, the last couple of years have been brutal. This is why I don't let my associates have children. Oh, nice. <laughs> so... Keep oh, that in the recording. Right. So, so that's a way to go. Um, <laughs> it seems to be working. <laughs> I will tell you, a uh, guy I used to work with, who's one of my favorite people ever, used to say all the time, he encouraged his associates to have kids because kids cost a lot. And if you have kids, you can't leave. Um, <laughs> so it's sort of the other end of it. And kids cost a lot. So Rob, it's, you know, it's figuring out what matters the most to you. And then doing whatever those things are that you have to do to get the job done so that you can get to those other things. I mean, for me, it's it's kind of that simple. And yeah. for me, those things are Jamie, Mia, Maddie, JoJo, and softball. I mean, those are, and, you know, obviously my family um, uh, and my friends. But, like, those are, you know, those are the things that matter most. So I do whatever I possibly can to make sure I get the time that I want, whether I they will want tell it or you, not. I have one thing that's going to make you super jealous. I once threw craps with Allen Iverson at the Gaylord, not next to the Gaylord. It's in National Harbor. There's in a National casino. Harbor, Maryland. Yes, yeah. yes. And I'm going next week. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe go go maybe to the craps be table because that's where Alan Iverson usually plays, apparently. And mm. he let me get in there and, like, put some stuff on the line. I, I'm not a very good craps player. I've read all the books, but I still can't. I'm just not smart enough to play craps. Yeah. Uh, Blackjack is great. Uh, Alan likes to gamble. Yes, yes, yes. I, I was in an elevator with him and his um Me too. you know, he's known for sagging his pants some. <laughs> yeah. And uh one of one of the guys that played on the championship team with him was one of my mentors growing up. Um and so I was on this trip with him. Wait, 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 whoa, whoa, who? Who who? George Lynch. Oh, I love George Lynch. Yeah. So George and I used to yeah, he used to we spent our summers together when I was in high school uh training. He would he would help me out as the 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 high school basketball player, you know. Uh, back then. But anyway, so Alan's pants are falling down. He, he decides to, you know, readjust them. And all these old ladies on the elevator just could not believe that he's sitting there undoing his pants and adjusting them <laughs> on, on the elevator. And uh, yeah, That's that was my one interaction. I, uh, I used to live in a building in Philly 
Um, this is going back. This is 2001, I think. Uh, and Deuce Daly, who was a running back for the Eagles at yeah. the time, mm-hmm. and Allen, there was some what we used to refer to as posse crossover. Right. Some of the guys who were they hung with Alan. They also hung with Deuce and a bunch of Deuce's guys lived in our building. So I'm in the elevator and it happened to be the day the Sixers traded for Tony Kukoc. And I'm in the elevator. Arm comes through. And it's Alan. And my wife would leave me that fast for Alan Iverson, like that fast. Um, And she'd have to fight me for him. But okay, Right. I mean, I think that. Yeah, I I suspect that's true. Uh, Alan gets on the elevator. And we just start talking about the trade and just start. And, and, you know, he's listed at what? 5'11", 170, you know, and now he's much bigger. But then if he was 5'9", 150, I'd have been surprised. He was super, super small, super slight, um, but like couldn't have been nicer. Mm -hmm. And like the highlight of my life, I got I got a guy hug from him on the way out of the elevator. And I walked into our apartment. Uh, the kids hadn't been born yet. It was just Jamie and me. And I walked in. I'm like, you're not going to believe who I just saw. Uh, who I just I'm hugged. Like, who I just and I'm, not, <laughs> I'm literally never, I'm never showering again. It's just not happening. I've got Alan on me. I'm and not going. she just you know. jumped and hugged you so she could get right, Jamie was, yes, absolutely. Couldn't get enough of me that day. <laughs> All yes. right. Okay. So. Michael, we're going to move into our last segment, which we call Pitch Your Passion. And you're super passionate about a lot of things. So hopefully you've thought of one to focus on and and pitch to our audience. I mean, I've already talked about it, but, it, you know, it, it's coaching. It's 100%. It is my absolute favorite thing to do. Um, I tell people all the time, being a lawyer is my side hustle. Right? <laughs> I finally... And, and, and I always... I was... I've been fortunate enough to have been able to work with an organization and it's, it's affiliated with major league baseball. And the entire purpose of the organization is to revitalize softball in the inner cities. The organization is called RBI and it started as revitalizing baseball in the inner cities and the young women who I've coached over the course of the last six years or so, if they go to college, will be first generation in their families to go to college. These are, kids who are massively different from a socioeconomic standpoint, from a racial, from a national origin, from a political standpoint than our, than my kids. And what I've gotten to do from a coaching standpoint, like the softball part of what I do is, is so far down the list of why I love it. And I love the game. I, I was a baseball player. That was what I did. But the softball part of coaching is meaningless as compared to, you know, Rob, you talked about George Lynch being a mentor for you mm-hmm. when you were playing ball in high school. Um, you know, I, I've had experiences with kids where I have helped with college essays, where I've helped with the admissions process because, and their parents are incredible people overwhelmingly. I mean, I'm really lucky that I've had great, great parents, which is not always the case. Um, but they just haven't been through these processes before and they're crazy overwhelming Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're scary and they're unknown. And, you know, I I work with a woman by the name of Carla Hudson, Carla, we joke with each other that Carla is my sister and I'm her brother. And and if you saw us, we don't really look alike. Um, (laughs) and, and Carla, we have very, very different backgrounds and Carla has become you know, one of my two or three best friends in the world over the course of the last six years. Uh, and she has taught me more than I can begin to express on how to deal with young women um, and young women, the likes of which we are coaching on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, people have different ways of giving back. It's, I don't know, that sounds it doesn't feel like the right phrase because like legitimately I get way more out of this, but you get to a certain point and you want to try and help people who genuinely are good and you know, will do good in the future and may not have the knowledge at this moment or the means at this moment. Um, you know, one of the kids I coached last year, 
um, was really struggling academically. Uh, and her mom talked to me and, and said, you know, I, she may not be able to play. And, you know, my view is, you know, academic you know, school is first, second and third. Right. Forget about softball. You know, I tell my girls all the time and I'll tell my girls on the team and I'll have this conversation with them tonight. Softball is a privilege. Softball is not an entitlement. Uh, and I had a conversation with this girl on my team and told her, I don't want to lose you. But you can't come if your grades don't go come up. And that's not your mom talking. That's me talking. Right. And she come, you know, get through the year. She doesn't miss any time. She's doing a little better, doing a little better. And, you know, before one of our last tournaments in June, uh, she came running up to me with her report card and she killed it. And like, and that kind of stuff matters so much more like than the games, you know, and, and I tell my girls and, and we're decent, we're not great. And I tell my girls when they get down, you know, I, I've played thousands of baseball games in my life every summer, traveled up and down the East coast playing ball. It's what I did. I can't remember a single score of a single game. Not one. Wow. You know what I remember? I remember bus trips. I remember flights. I remember torturing people in hotels. <laughs> I remember, right? and, and Rob, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Come on now. I'm not, Rob <laughs> mentioned George Lynch. And like, that's the I mean, stuff. I mostly just kept the books, but I did play. Sometimes. Hey, nothing wrong with keeping the book either. But like that to me, being able to be a part and being able to provide that kind of an experience for these young women, it, it's everything. It's why I love doing it. That's awesome. That's cool. I lettered in softball in high school. Let's go. What position now did you play? My, okay. The letterman says, yes, the letterman thing actually says that I lettered as a softball manager. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Somebody's got to keep the book and carry the stuff. It doesn't carry carry any stuff. I had this really, I used like Excel before Excel was cool to keep, like, I was pretty much Moneyball before Moneyball was cool. Okay. (laughs) When did Excel become cool? Like, when did that happen? Are you kidding me? It's so bad. I can oh see God. the CPA license in the back. Yeah, that's oh, what I was about to say. You're talking to a CPA. Say Excel is not cool. Or people who don't know how to use Excel. Okay, I'm just that's gonna say. <laughs> very, very well may be the case. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. We've had a blast. Go Cowboys. Go Pat. Go. Go Birds. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Most Illegal Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you like and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can also check us out online on MostlyLegalPodcast.com where you can sign up for our email list, get weekly recaps, and get some of your very own Mostly Legal swag.